On Palm Sunday, we know in our church liturgy, this is the big day. It's the day where everyone is jubilant, exciting, and it's, there's high praises that are ascending to the Lord. Their eyes are fixed upon him with great anticipation and expectation. The scripture will say it basically this way with the triumphal entry. It's recorded actually in all the gospels, which is unique because many of the things that happened in the life of Jesus were not recorded in all of the gospels. Sometimes in the synoptic, which is the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then the gospel of John that kind of stands out on its own. But it's recorded in all four this triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. Fulfilling a prophecy, Zechariah chapter nine and verse nine, that says that the king will come in on a donkey. And so the unfolding of prophecies were beginning to happen on this day. And then we know in the scripture, it says a great multitude had come to the feast. This is the feast of Passover. This is when the Jewish people are reflecting upon the great deliverance they experience from the bondage of the Egyptians under the tyranny and the control and the slavery of the Egyptians. And they're celebrating their deliverance. So deliverance is on their mind. A savior, a Messiah, a redeemer is on their mind, but it's encased in their own personal presupposition of it's got to be an earthly king. Free us from the tyranny of the Romans. Lift their heavy hand of oppression from us. So that's what's happening on the inside of them. That's kind of their agenda, their expectation, their anticipation, their hope. There's nothing intrinsically or innately bad about that, but it skewed off course. It blinded their lens. It disrupted their ability to really receive the plan that was unfolding before their eyes. That is why when the scripture says, you know, a great multitude had come to the feast of Passover, when they heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. He's here And they're excited. But there's one problem. They're looking through the wrong lens. Now this is going to have application to all of us. It's pertinent right now, practical and relevant to you right now, because every one of us look through a variety of different lenses each day. When we look at God, ourselves, others, our circumstances, we're looking through a lens. Is it the right lens or the wrong lens? Is it creating distortion, a blurriness, even a blindness? Or is it allowing us to have clarity as we navigate and process through choices and decisions in the context of our life? How do I handle my life, my health, my finances, the relationships, my children, my grandchildren, my friendships in the workplace? How how, how do I handle finances? Do I invest in a market that seems to be plummeting? Do I store up my money in savings with, with an inflation that's getting out of hand at six, seven, eight, nine percent? What, what, what do I do? What, 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 these, these areas about education or who I'm to marry and you're navigating through so many decisions. And then when you look up, you operate with a lens there. You look at God and you say, hmm, is he there for me? And if you look through the lens that he's some type of drill sergeant, you might think all he's inordinately preoccupied was with the law. 
and enforcing it upon you and demanding certain lifestyle patterns and conduct and behavior. Or maybe you see him just kind of a marshmallow God. He's just soft-spoken on everything. Everything is arbitrary. There's nothing really right or wrong. It's relative. Just be eclectic. Do whatever you want. Everything is fluid, including gender and everything else that happens in life. Yeah. You might see God that way. Or he's indifferent, passive, apathetic, ill-concerned, a frozen statue in the heavens. He really doesn't intervene. So maybe you say you're a Christian, but you're more a deist or a theist. God exists, but it isn't relevant or relational to me. See, the way you perceive him impacts the way you receive him. And then how you represent him unto others. Oh, the lens you look through is very important. Because see, the way you perceive yourself, your own self-analysis and evaluation, conclusions that you form on the basis of maybe your accumulated experiences or your education or your personality or your rearing or what you inherited, is it, you know, the, the genetics of what has been deposited into you, and you form these conclusions about who you are, who you are. You've listened to others and so, you know, your perception of self affects how you receive yourself and how you represent yourself to others. Your perception of others impacts how you receive another person and how you talk about them or represent them to others. I remember after one service, a guy came up and said, hey, Pastor Zarlingo. I said, yes, you remind me of my uncle. I said, really? And I didn't like my uncle. He was being honest with me. So I was honest with him. I said, you kind of remind me of one of my uncles too. How you perceive affects how you receive. And it flows right out of your life. Now, listen. They were looking through the wrong lens, and that's why Jesus said in Luke 19 and verse 42, he says, listen, you've missed the day of your visitation. Though your eyes were wide open and you were looking and thinking you were seeing, you were looking at it through the wrong lens. The wrong lens. And that's why he'll, he'll actually say in, in Luke 19, verse 42, what's happening today has been hidden from your eyes. Oh God, what lens am I employing in my life when I look at you, myself, others, society, circumstances? with all the deception that has become so intense and so dense and descends through media and so many voices, a, a plethora of voices pounding on us, distorting how we see and how we navigate through life. Oh, that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 18. That we could see and look through the right lens and not miss what you're doing right now in this day and in this hour. So that we could be ready and our dependence is not upon our profession or our title, our rearing education or even our livelihood. Our identity is always rooted. I'm your son and I am your daughter. What is your plan because I want to flow and be in harmony with your plan for my life. Not mine, but yours. 
How sacred and magnificent, mighty and strong his plan is. He doesn't bury you. He doesn't dismantle you. He refines you and reshapes you. And then he allows you to blossom and bloom in your personality, in your intellect, in your identity, and in your destiny to be everything he's ordained you to be. So you, in, you equip yourself by placing yourself into his hands. Now, they cried out that day, Hosanna. And that word, it's a very unique word in the Hebrew language because there's a threefold meaning with it. And each one seems almost isolated, independent of one another. So you're not sure how to fuse them together or harmonize them. But Hosanna in the Hebrew language communicates first this intensity of a, of a plea. It's a plea that's lifted. It's save. That's what's contained. That word is pregnant with the idea of save me. There's a plea. And then there's a petition built into it of help me. And then there's a sense of immediacy. Now. I need you to help me, save me now. And because I'm recognizing you're the one that could do it, now it translates into praise. Hosanna! You see how they're all married together? Help, save, and you're the one. Oh, I give praise to you. That's Hosanna incorporates all of it. A plea and a petition and a praise unto God. And there was, it was based on Psalm 118, as it says so clearly, save us now, Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they were making that declaration to God. Do I have the right scripture up there? See, I'm playing around with it myself. There it is. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us. Now here's where it goes wrong. Their praise is real. Praise is always gonna impact your gaze, and I'm not trying to be cute with a rhyme there. It just does, and I hope it's memorable. Praise is impacts your gaze. Gaze, by definition, is a steady look in one particular direction. You're gazing. Has that ever happened to you when you've gone out to eat? I remember I was out eating with, at a restaurant with my brother, Bruce, and all of a sudden he was fixated in a given direction. I said, Bruce, what are you looking at? He goes, this person's staring at me, so I'm staring back at him. I said, oh, is that how you solve that? I just kind of look away and look down. It becomes awkward. You know, one, rest, one restaurant when I was eating with Diane, I decided to attempt it. I looked over and this person was just looking at me. I thought, what are you looking at? So I decided. And then they, and then they went down. They looked. It, it worked. It worked. It worked. You could stare someone down. Gaze to gaze. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, it says to us, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Treasure is what you deem as important, significant, and valuable. What you praise. What you praise. This is valuable. This is significant. This is important. That's praise. Praise affects your gaze. You're going to look at it. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So they were praising Jesus. So there was nothing wrong with their praise. 
But it was the wrong lens that they were looking through. And that's what got them in trouble and caused them to miss what the Lord was doing. Because what they were looking for was a conquering king that would rule over Israel, snap the back of the tyranny of Rome, and bring deliverance to them now. Now, there was nothing wrong with the what. The problem was how God deemed he was going to do it and when he was going to do it. And that's when we sometimes get ourselves in trouble. As we look at the unfolding plan of God, we've got the what, but then the how creates perplexity. And the timing stirs up impatience. You're not doing it the way I thought you were going to do it. And you're definitely not doing it on my timetable. So you get disillusioned. You get frustrated. And angst gets over your heart. And you start evolving from doubt and cynicism and skepticism even into a position of unbelief. And so you have to protect your heart from that and say, okay, something's unfolding here. But I don't want to miss it. Because there's a moment when Jesus will come as the conquering king. But in this moment, he was advancing as the suffering servant. And they were looking through the eyes over here. They wanted to see the lion. They didn't want to be introduced to the lamb. But realize in the kingdom of God, the lamb will roar. It's the antithesis of what we anticipate from the mouth of a lamb, but... There was a great deal of roaring that was going on, but it was beyond the decibel level of their ears to hear it. The Lamb of God had come. They were looking through the wrong lens because Jesus told them God's sacred plan. He laid it out earlier, but they missed it, even his own disciples, when he said in Luke chapter 9 and verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and by the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. That was the lens that they were supposed to be looking through on Palm Sunday, and they missed it. They missed it. So here is a, a question for you. Rhetorical, yes, but applicable and practical for your takeaway. Ask yourself, what's the lens that I consistently look through? In other words, your perspective evolves into your perception, which then translates into an interpretation. And it might sound technical, but we do it every day, every day, because your perspective is what you're observing and then you take that data in and you absorb it through your eyes and through your ears and your reasoning begins to mingle with that and that that observation then evolves into an understanding at least what you feel are the legs that you'll stand up with of understanding and then it evolves into a conclusion your interpretation so you have to determine this lens that I'm going to look through, I've got to make sure it's not distorted, unclean, infested with deception, dirty. I've got to make sure it's not, it's not faulty or damaged because you and I can get ourselves in big trouble. Let me just give you one example. You know, over 42 years of ministry, I've had to do a lot of funerals. I was at a funeral home and I went in and I thought I was perceiving everything correctly. And I walked into the room and I met with the family. And 
and they were all grieving, of course, and I was, I was connecting with them in their, in, their, in their brokenness. And so I said, I'm gonna begin the service in a moment. I've gotta step out to the restroom. I'll be back in a moment. So I went out, and then I came back in, and when I came in, I kind of noticed everything looked a little different. The coffin was closed, and I thought, okay, maybe they just wanted, the family had asked the funeral director to close the, the casket. So I got up in the front, and I started inviting everyone, please come and sit down. I really didn't look real closely what was happening. It was about 50-some people. I said, please, please come down and sit down. As I looked around, I noticed that some of them were a little irritated, a little agitated, but I, I couldn't figure that one out. But I said, please be seated. And they all were seated. And I said, listen, I'm here to you know, extend uh, the heart and compassion of my heart as senior pastor in Smithtown Gospel Tabernacle. She was just such a wonderful woman. And all of a sudden, I hear this guy in the front row go, he... I said, I said, she, she was a, a wonderful woman. He. And I realized I'm in the wrong room. <laughs> I looked up. I was, I was so beat red. I didn't have the presence of mind to say anything. I remember Diane said, what did you do? I went like this. I walked right. I walked right out of Chapel A, I went into Chapel B, oh, this is the right one. Okay, would everyone be seated? And I just thought, I am not going out until they are all gone. <laughs> 50 people were like, who was, what was that all about? I never clarified, never went in, never said a word. Perception, interpretation, understanding, conclusions, very dangerous. But here, here's an incredible example. Wait. And see it up there. See it there. Yes. Here now is a whole different story with John the Baptist. He's looking through the lens of revelation. He's able to see Jesus in a whole different light. Now I know this is in Palm Sunday, but it's 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 applicable to the moment of what I'm expressing to you right now when it comes to the lens that we look through. He was looking through a lens that, that caused him to say, behold, listen to what it says, John saw, let's say that together, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, now that's a very interesting word in the original language of the Greek New Testament. It means that there's an intensity of looking at something and then you want that to translate to impacting others. Okay, so what I'm seeing, I want others to know I'm looking at it and I want them to see it too. So they say, behold, behold. I'm not just looking at something that's gonna impact me. I want everyone to be impacted like, by this. Behold. You see, he was looking through that lens of revelation. Let me tell you, this week, if you'll say, Lord, I'm gonna throw away all my lenses, some of the lens of anxiety or fear, or the lens of confusion or, or unbelief, the, the different lenses that sometimes I look through to determine who you are, what you're about to do, or your plan, your strategy, and Jesus himself. And I'm gonna look through that lens of revelation. And you know what that will become? It'll become an impetus into you. It'll push you in the small of your back and stir up a courage and, and, and a boldness and a, and a bravery within you that isn't being antagonistic or obnoxious or ill-spirited or mean-spirited or cantankerous. It doesn't mean you suddenly become someone that others don't want to be around. You just have a courage now in you that isn't roadblocked by any fears 
because you behold Jesus as, John said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And you'll have a boldness in your heart that you won't want to be just the individual looking on. You're going to say friend and family member and colleague and, and neighbor and in the community. Behold Jesus. Come and behold him with me. That's the lens of revelation. It stirs you. It's not just reason and logic or some polemic or the cosmological, teleological, ontological arguments for the existence of God. It's not just these academic display of trying to get someone to move toward Christ. It's, listen, I got a revelation. Reason serves me, but it's not going to master me. Reason involves logic, but revelation involves lordship. He's the Lord over my life. It's like in, when a plane takes off, it doesn't deny the law of gravity. It just supersedes it with the law of lift and thrust. So when revelation comes, it doesn't negate reasoning. I want to operate with good sanctified reasoning when I'm sharing the gospel, but I want it to have revelation. Revelation. So it soars up high and isn't pulled down by just gravitation. So when you look through the lens of revelation and you see Jesus like John the Baptist saw him, you'll say, look, behold. And you, again, you won't just say, look. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that will remove the anxiety and the angst and the fear and the intimidation that sometimes comes when someone with their intellect or their demeanor or their personality or their status kind of intimidates you. Just say, you know what, Lord, I'm gonna pray for them. Then baptize me in your love for them. And then I'm gonna look at you, Jesus, through the lens of revelation, and that's gonna make me bold as a lion to share the gospel because I'm not ashamed of the one who brought me out of shame. I'm gonna share him. You see, when things come in your direction, you know, when you begin to assess and evaluate through a lens, when you have revelation, then when there's stones that you feel are being cast at you, someone's rejecting you, someone's ridiculing you, someone's mocking you, someone's formed an incorrect conclusion about you, or maybe you feel the stone in the, uh, of a society that wants you to be eclectic and open-minded and you're so, you're so stubborn and closed-minded that you're, you're just, you're just, you just see Jesus as the only way and you, you feel stones coming at you. Or maybe with your own finances, your own health, or you just feel all those stones. If you, listen, you could look at that through a different lens. Those stones can become a, a pile over you that bury you or they can become a platform underneath you to lift you up. And this isn't positive thinking. This is obedient thinking. I want to have an obedient mind subject to Christ. Every thought taken captive to the obedience of Christ. That's obedient thinking and a whole different interpretation of it. You know, the scripture will say in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened to bring forth light. Remember the passage in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. What does the Lord say? Let there be 
light. You know what he's saying to you? I want you to be able to see. Let there be light. Could you imagine hypothetically if I invited you to get dressed, okay? I said, hey, listen, we're gonna go to Sunday service. Would you go into your back room, get dressed, okay? And let's just say there's no windows. I know this is a strange hypothetical. No windows, and you're solely reliant upon the light in there. And then you go into your closet, and I turn all the lights off. And you, hey, 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 how do you expect me to get dressed? I say, no, no, go for it. Just feel around for the color. Do you know what you'd come out like? A clown. What if I invited you to put something together? You had all the tools all lined up. There it was. Maybe you're going to make a model or construct something or build something. You got all the tools. I said, you got them all? Yeah. You got the directions? I'm a man. I don't need directions. And then you start, and I go like this. See you later. I close the door. Turn the lights out. Hey! I said, no, no, you got the skill set. You got the intelligence. You could do it. No, no, no. I need light. See, I need light. The the environment is too dark. I'm not going to be able to do a thing with this. My father-in-law, he used to fly airplanes as a a hobby, and I'd get on the plane with him. And I I always marveled, you know, when the propellers would start going, they'd start going so fast, you couldn't see them anymore. And I thought, wow, isn't that interesting? I could move toward that and think I'm safe. And if I went too close, it'd be a disaster. But when we would go up in the air, when he'd fly, the sun would reflect on it, and you'd see it. You'd see the propellers. And I thought, wow, Lord, as I walk through life, I could be walking in a direction that could be so dangerous, and I'm not picking it up because I lack light. I could be walking right into something. When, I, when my grandfather was alive and my grandmother had passed away, they asked all the younger grandchildren to stay a couple nights with him. And so my assignment was like a Friday evening. I was 12 years old. And I would go and get in my grandpa. It was, he lived in an apartment. And I would, and, and it was kind of a house apartment because it had a garage attached to it. And I said, okay, Grandpa, you go to sleep, you know. So for a 12-year-old, you know, if you heard any noises, it'd be a little intimidating. And so I was there, and I started hearing, Grandpa? Grandpa. I thought, oh, boy. I'm on duty. I'm the only one here, 12 years old, okay? I don't have any weapon, anything. But I heard something on the outside in the garage area. And so uh, I had the presence of mind. I said, you know what? I don't care. I'm going to call the police. So I called 911. Hey, could you please send them 12 years old? Would you please get over here? Okay, so they came. And the poli- there's nothing. Oh, it feels so good. I was in behind the door waiting. And then he came. The squad car pulled up. Ah, I felt so safe. Opened it up. I said, listen, I'm hearing noises over garage over here. He goes, okay, all right. He took it, he, he put his hand near his gun, he had the light, went just like that. And all of a sudden, boom, there he was. It was a guy, there was a guy. I was behind the I said, see him? I, said, I knew I heard him. And the guy was like, oh, and he goes, hey, hey, you know, the whole thing. I thought, wow. The light revealed something that would have been so dangerous. And I thought, here's our light. And you're getting harassed sometimes. Some of you are getting harassed by demons in your mind, your emotions, your marriage. And you need that light to say, boys, I'm hearing movement. And you need that light to go, what is bugging me in here? Oh, here you are. I bind you in Jesus' name. You follow me? 
There's something tremendously important about the light coming. God has given us eyes. The complexity of the human eye is astounding. And he does that by analogy and metaphor to convince us of how incredible our spiritual eye is and the lens that we look through. Even Charles Darwin, in his book on the origin of species as through natural selection, in chapter 6, he will say he was basically befuddled and he felt that his whole hypothesis of evolution was in jeopardy because of the unique design, the intricacies of the human eye. You'll read that dilemma in chapter six. He never, never steps away from his hypothesis of evolution, never. He never capitulates. He feels it's just a matter of time. It'll be properly understood. But for him, he actually writes in chapter six of his book, Charles Darwin will say, this idea of natural selection, the evolution of the human eye is probably absurd. It just seems absurd. In a dialogue with one of his colleagues, who was a professor at Harvard at the time, natural history, and that professor at Harvard, he wrote to him, and he says, you know, every time, this is Charles uh, Darwin, he says, every time I consider the human eye, it's like a, a cold shiver goes over me that is, this just doesn't work. It, it just doesn't work with evolution because of the complexity of the human eye. Now think of that. Now in recent articles I've read, there's some scientists that feel that they've resolved that dilemma and the complexity of the human eye in the process of mutation in evolution and, and the selection that would have to have occurred through millions and millions and millions of years. But they basically arrived at, and you could read these articles that they said they found and they discovered a small little worm and in that worm, it has a molecule that seems to resemble some of the cones and rods in the human eye that could reflect light. And in the end of the article they wrote, we have now resolved this problem of evolution in relationship to the complexity of the human eye. And I'm like, you're like kidding, guys. I'm sorry, I may not be a scientist, but I'm not an income poop. Did you just tell me you found a worm? Yes, we found a worm. And what was in it? It was a molecule in there. What kind of molecule? It had light. Did it radiate light? No, no, it, but it, it looked like it had the shape of a rod. And from that, we realized that's where the eye came from. That would be like me standing in front of the Empire State Building and finding a little piece of steel and saying, oh, now I know how this came into existence. The complexity of the human eye, if it's that complex, you know God has given you a spiritual eye. How complex is your spiritual eye? To be able to look through the right lens, the lens of revelation and enlightenment and truth, the lens that also marries itself because in, in, in Ephesians chapter one and verse 18, it also says that, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him and the eyes of your understanding may be opened. You know, when I'm processing through a decision, I need God's wisdom, don't you? 
If it's a minor or major decision, stay with me. You need to hear this. God wants you to operate in wisdom. Wisdom is part of that marriage with the eyes being enlightened. But it's a wisdom that's not the wisdom that we normally think of. Like we think wise person. Uh, you know, wisdom is, is basically a knowledge on steroids. Uh, the, the ability to, to um, put together all of your knowledge and formulate a, a good judgment call and decision. All right, fine. That could be your workable definition. But it's interesting that that's not how it's defined in the New Testament. In James chapter 3 and verse 17, it says something very unique about wisdom. And this is what I cry out to when I say, Lord, I've got to make a lot of minor, a lot of major decisions in my life with my family, with my marriage, within the context of the church. So many, I need your wisdom, Lord. And this is what it says in James chapter 3 verse 17. It doesn't define it on the content of knowledge, but on the condition position and posture of the human heart. And you wonder why? Because here's the description given in James 3.17. If you're listening online, listen. If you're processing through a decision, you've got to turn a lot of lights on. You want to illuminate. So there's eight of them. Turn them all on. Floodlights. You'll know what to do. If you do what you know to do from Holy Scripture, you do what you know to do from Holy Scripture, then you'll know what to do. But you got to come to him. One of them says, wisdom that is from above, above, is pure, peaceable, gentle, submissive, good fruit, merciful, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. Those are the eight. So you have to say, Lord, Yes, Jesus, you said that. Matthew chapter 5. The pure in heart will see God. Purity brings clarity. Now I get it. More than a knowledge base, I've got to have a pure heart. So as I'm processing through this decision, grant me a pure heart. You just turned a light on. You just turned a light on. God, I want to be peaceable. That means to join with. Irene is the Greek word. I want to join with you. I want to move close to you in this decision. And that's not my plan or strategy. It's yours. You just turn the light on. You just turn the light on. Lord, I want, I want to be of a gentle heart. That means someone who's under control. And, and I, don't, I want to be yielding. That means you're flexible. You're not stiff. This is my agenda. This is the way it needs to happen. No, you're... You're submissive to the potential of change and flexibility as you're processing through it. You follow me? Peaceful, the, 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 the gentleness, merciful. That means I don't want any judgment in me against myself, others, or what I might think they're thinking as I process through this decision. I don't want any hypocrisy. I want to be authentic or any partiality where I'm blinded by bias or being obstinate and stubborn. You see, when you get that right, you'll turn on eight lights. I'm telling you, this is how I make decisions. Turn all those lights on. Now I'm ready to process through the data, the information, this. If it be in a relationship or conflict, finances, future, I got all the lights on. That's the wisdom of the Lord, that your eyes would be illuminated. You would understand Now again, back to Palm Sunday, they saw it in a completely different way. Think of the lens that the Jewish people were looking through. We want an earthly king. That was their lens. The Romans, they were seeing a rebel. 
Pilate, he was seeing a dreamer, a philosopher, someone who didn't know who he quite was. The Pharisees, they were looking through the lens. That's a blasphemer. Distorted, dark. Herod, I want to see the musician. Pull off a nice miracle for me here. Do something supernatural. Peter, hey, you're anointed. You're our leader. Don't die. Why do you want to die? Doesn't make sense. Wrong lens, Pete. Judas, hey, Jesus, you're a masterful politician. You'll be able to pull it off. I got the money. I'm your treasurer. We'll do it. Oh, no. It's gone awry. And then all the disciples, they were looking through the lens. Oh, he's failing. He's a failure. He's crucified. It's over. What was that all about? All of them, they didn't realize that the king was a lamb. That his sword was a cross. His conquest, antithesis, I know, is paradoxical. His conquest was surrender. They didn't see it. His victory was him dying. His palace was a tomb. And the blood that was shed was not in rebellion against the Romans with their blood. It was his blood that would be shed. But they didn't see it. And God forbid that we would have the wrong lens. That's what's on the heart of God. May the lens be of discernment and revelation. Possibly of any of the apostles, John had that because he rested his head on the chest of Christ and knew the heartbeat. Knew the heartbeat. Because he's the only apostle that joins Jesus on Calvary. The only one. The only one. Jeremiah 29, 11. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. For I know the plans I have for you. Who has the plans? The Lord. He has the plans. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Can we stand up? And I'm going to ask you to do something. I know the service has gone a little longer. But hey, this is my last Palm Sunday. <laughs> Place your hands, would you? On your eyes. I just speak to you as a spiritual father to you that I've had this honor for so many years. Ask God to touch your eyes and to allow them. Come on, I know some of you, uh, I don't do this. Just place your hand on your eyes. The unique design of the human eye, but how profoundly designed is your spiritual eye. But you got to look through the right lens. The lens of truth and the lens of revelation, the lens of discernment, the lens of God's holy sacred word, the lens of faith. And say, oh God, may the eyes of my understanding be enlightened. Come on, let that be your prayer. Young people here, you're going to be navigating through so many decisions before you. Those who are older, you still got a whole pile of decisions to make, a direction to go. You've got to know we're work, working in such a dark dark, dark world. Your eyes need to have understanding and revelation 
They need to be enlightened, infused with light. And I say over your eyes now, let there be light. Let there be light so you can see what is the unfolding plan of God for you and for others and for your marriage and your singleness and in your family and in your future. You can see what God is doing when you're looking for the lion, God wants you to see the lamb. And you can then say, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Now just lift your hands to the Lord, would you? And say, I thank you, God, I thank you. You're gonna give me that enlightenment. You're gonna give me the wisdom. The lights are gonna come on. I'm gonna know, I'm gonna know that I know that I know what you want me to do, where you want me to go. I know it, God, I know it. You're faithful, you're faithful. I'm gonna do what I know to do in order to do then what you've called me to do. Oh God, I thank you and I praise you. I'm gonna look through the right lens. When I look at you, when I look at myself, when I look at others, when I look at circumstances, and I thank you and I praise you, you are the one we can turn to in the right way and say, help, save, and we give you praise. We love you, Lord.